Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. Um, Welcome to the LSE. Um, Welcome to all of you here in London and welcome to all of you um, online. Uh, For some of you that means good morning, Uh, for some of them, for some of you it means good afternoon, for some of you it means good evening. In any any event, welcome to the LSE and welcome to the Marshall Institute. Um, You may know that um, we uh, spend our time working on maximizing public benefit through philanthropy and through innovation. So it's my particular pleasure to welcome back to the LSE um, Will McCaskill, who's probably done more than anyone to focus the world's attention on doing good, doing it better, and now on doing it for the long term. Most philosophers are not even well known to their colleagues. Will is known globally, um, as is the effective altruism movement that he did so much to um, inspire and develop, um, and with which he's synonymous. Um, I don't think he's always delighted to be quite as well known as he is, um, but I'm really, really pleased to welcome him back to the very room in which we discussed your last book. Um, Just a couple of housekeeping points. Um, This session uh, is being recorded. Um, uh, You in this room are joined by a large number of people who are joining us um, online. Um, I'm going to ask Will just to say a few opening words. I'm then going to have a conversation with him in which I ask him questions, which I hope will be in part on your behalf. So I will try and pick out, having read the book, some of the things that I think are most interesting. We'll then ask you to ask us questions, both online and in person. So if you're in the room, put your hand up. I will spot your hand. Try to formulate your question as a question. And if you're online, send it, and I will see it, and I will recognize uh, your question. We finish at uh, 8 o'clock. There are copies of Will's book, outside this room. Um, I'm enough of a former publisher to say that you really should leave owning a copy of the book, and you should probably leave owning a signed copy. So if you get a copy, bring it back in afterwards, and Will will sign it for you. So welcome. Welcome back. Very good to see you. Um, Congratulations on the book. I've spent the last two weekends with it, and uh, a good chunk of this afternoon. Can I ask you to begin by defining for those people in the room who haven't read the book exactly what you mean by long-termism, and then some of the key arguments that you make? Sure, thank you. And uh, can you all hear me okay when I'm going forward? Fantastic. Uh, So the book is called What We Are the Future, about this idea called long-termism. The idea that we as a society should be doing much more than we currently are to protect the interests of future generations. And in fact, that trying to make the long-term go well, it's a key moral priority of our time. Uh, And when I talk about the long-term, you know, I'm not just thinking about coming decades, um, even coming centuries, I'm really thinking about 
the entire course of uh, future civilization. Now, why would one believe long-termism? Um, I think the basic argument is very simple, um, rests on kind of three core ideas. The first is that future people count morally, that uh, if we're going to harm or benefit someone, it doesn't really matter, or not, not particularly matter, when in time that occurs. Uh, the second is that there could be enormous numbers of future people, that at least if humanity gets its act together and we don't go extinct in the coming centuries, uh, the number of people who could exist in the future could outnumber us by thousands or millions to one. So there's a truly enormous amount at stake. The final idea is that we really can make a difference to the lives of those future generations. There are things that we are doing now, that are happening now, or that we're not doing now, that could impact uh, the very long run indeed. So it uh, could be very good or very bad, not just for the present generation, but for many, many generations to come. Now, we're kind of familiar with this set of ideas, in particular in the context of climate change, where climate change will have uh, major impacts um, you know, within our lifetimes, but will also have very long-term impacts too. So CO2 uh, will typically stay in the atmosphere for thousands, even tens of thousands of years, um, and it will co contribute to a warmer planet throughout that entire time period. However, uh, I think if we're concerned about future generations, we shouldn't just care about climate change. I think there are many issues we should be paying attention to. Um, I kind of categorize these into um, two um, kind of major boxes. One is risks of global civilizational collapse, or even risk of human extinction. So among these, I focus in particular on the risks from engineered pandemics. So we saw with COVID-19 the damage that um, a pandemic can wreak upon the world. I think future pandemics could get much, much worse again because uh, we have and are making even better the technology to make viruses or other pathogens of unprecedented power, the sorts of uh, pathogens that could kill essentially everyone in the world or maybe even or almost everyone in the world. And if civilization ends, if humanity goes extinct, well, that's not something we can come back from. Uh, that is. Uh, above anything else, the key example of an extremely long, like, uh, long run impact, and a very bad one, in my view. Second category is things that um, might not change kind of whether civilization continues at all, but the value of that civilization, how good or bad it is. And within that, I talk about improving society's values, but I think a particular issue, and one that's only become more salient since the book came out, is artificial intelligence, where we are making very rapid progress um, towards more and more powerful and more and more general um, AI systems. I think there's an enormous number of ways this could go, um, but uh, it's perfectly conceivable to me that this means that within our lifetime, we could see power concentrated in the hands of a very small number of individuals. Um, perhaps Google or Microsoft or Facebook have more wealth than the entire rest of the world combined. Um, I think there are many ways in which AI could give um, unprecedented con control to a small number of individuals. Or we could lose control ourselves. Um, we could lose control to AI systems um, that are far smarter than we are, um, in just the same way as uh, 
the Neanderthals or chimpanzees lost uh, any sort of control over their own future to Homo sapiens that outcompeted them. I'm sure we're going to talk about those things um, at much more length. Uh, these all kind of pertain to that third premise of whether we can, whether we really can influence the long-term future. I think by making those, uh, um, you know, by reducing the risk of extinction, by increasing the value of civilization, given that we do last a long time, I think we really can make uh, a lasting difference kind of far into the future. And that's the point I want to make in this book. Okay, thank you. Um, just before I get on to my, my first question, I just want to make sure that people understand really what, really just how extraordinary your projections are. I mean, first of all, the subtitle of the book is A Million Year View. But could you just tell people, if we last as long as a typical mammalian species, what percentage of humans have yet to exist, roughly? I mean, uh, I think I remember from the book, but it's... Sure, you might well be more on top of the numbers at the moment <laughs> than I am. Uh, so we've, we've, Homo sapiens has been around for about 300,000 years. Um, a typical mammal species lasts about a million years. So if we last as long as a typical mammal species suggests we've got about 700,000 um, years to go. Uh, but that's actually a low bar estimate in some ways. Now, I really think we might cause our own extinction within the coming centuries. It would obviously make us last uh, much less long than a typical mammal species. But there's no reason at all why using wisdom and cooperation and technology we couldn't last much longer than a typical mammal species. Earth will be habitable for hundreds of millions of years. Um, but but on, on that mathematics, if I remember correctly, 95% of humans have yet to be born. Okay? If you only take those, as that, yeah. those numbers as the parameter, um, which is an extraordinary, an extraordinary, as it were, context in which to be having this conversation. Can, can I start, Will, by just asking a bit about you? I don't, I'm not asking about the future, I'm not asking about long-termism, and in fact, I'm asking a little bit about the past. Why philosophy? And once we know why philosophy, why that strand of philosophy that I take to start with Sidgwick and, and go through um, philosophers in the room will know this, those who don't, don't need to, will go through figures like Derek Parfit and yeah. Peter Singer and John Broom. Sure, so, yeah, I, it wasn't that long after I discovered what philosophy was that I thought I wanted to be a philosopher. Um, it kind of immediately resonated with me. In particular, uh, I was very concerned with ideas, both scientific um, and from the humanities, uh, and you know, we would study literature at school, and uh, I got uh, very interested in the work of Dostoevsky. Um, and a really big part of that was because it seemed to me like Dostoevsky was grappling with the biggest questions that were just so important for how we understood um, society, how we understood like how we should act. So does God exist? If he doesn't, does that mean that just everything is permitted, morally speaking, and there's, there's no reason to act morally? These questions really kept me up at night. Um, uh, and then when I discovered that there was this thing called philosophy, I realized that, oh, you can just talk about these um, issues directly. You don't need to write a work of fiction to embed discussion of them. And I was like, that's great. Um, so I really, um, you know, in my final years of school, um, you know, got very into the topic. And in a very personal way, honestly, I remember talking with a 
a schoolmate and just afterwards we just have our head in our hands like think, talking about the problem of free will and we just couldn't see a way in which we could have free will in a deterministic universe and we were like well we've got to just figure this out because otherwise what do we do I mean it's so um, great you know you're at the LSE as you say that there are people in the room nodding nodding along yeah they're just like yes it was the same uh, and so even at the time I really believed that um philosophical ideas um, could have a big impact on the world. So the first big kind of autonomous moral decision I made was uh, to become vegetarian the day I left my parents' home because I knew they wouldn't approve. Um, and that was on the basis of you know, philosophical arguments. I just couldn't see, for all the defenses of eating meat, I just couldn't see how they couldn't have also been used as defenses of slave owning 200 years ago. Uh, and, yeah, since then, I mean, the kind of, uh, that kind of idea that philosophical ideas can change the world has really been kind of a, a continuing thread um, from, yeah, me being a 16-year-old and uh, really thinking we need to figure out whether God exists or free will is possible uh, to now to, you know, to some of the ideas I talk about in this book. But it was the moral turn in philosophy, it was the kind of ethical turn that ended up being the thing that you cared most about. That's right, and that wasn't kind of preordained. Um, I got a bit nerd sniped when I was an undergraduate by uh, very esoteric issues in logic, philosophy of language. Um, you know, there's always a tension between um, work that's practically important and work that's kind of intellectually inter interesting. And uh, I was on track to be kind of a logician. Uh, I was really interested. I mean, this shows how nerdy you get, it gets. So there's this huge philosophical literature on how to understand um, the meaning of sentences uh, that have conditionals in them, so if-then statements. Um, you might think that sounds very boring. We can, maybe we can just hard pivot in this and we can talk yeah. about... Um, semantics of conditionals. So, so now all the people who were nodding are shaking their heads going, yeah, no, exactly. we, don't, we don't want to do that. Um, so I was, I was into very nerdy philosophy, but then um, just the, you know, the reality of the problems that we face in the world just really weighed on me, and that meant that I thought, look, I can't really justify a life where I'm working on these very intellectually interesting topics that were you know, not going to benefit anyone, and that's why I started working on model philosophy. Okay, thank you. Um, one of the things, you don't know this, but one of the things that those of our students in the room will know that I quote all the time is from your last book, this rather useful triad that the effective altruism movement uses for cause selection. And they essentially say that causes, if you're going to, all other things being equal, you should choose to support causes that are important, tractable, and neglected. Okay? That's a kind of triad. Um, um, that, that I have shamelessly adopted yeah. as a useful principle. In the new book, in this book, there is a similar triad, um, uh, and it's significance, persistence, contingency. And I wonder if you could do me the favor of explaining to my students in the room what that triad is about. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, within doing good better and the idea of effective altruism in general, trying to do as much good as you can, very common to rely on this idea of importance, neglectedness, tractability. So big problems that other people aren't paying attention to, yet you can kind of you can really make a difference on them. 
And so this is a way of cashing out, um, this new triad is a way of cashing out the importance dimension, which is if you're thinking of just how big is a problem, well, we should look at um, how long lasting is it? So uh, some things might just be, um, you know, fads, they don't last uh, for the very long time. Uh, other things will last extraordinarily long, for an extraordinarily long time. So um, species extinction, for example, if a species goes extinct, including human beings, um, they will never come back from that. It's an irrevocable loss. So it lasts as long as civilization does. Uh, second is um, significance, which is just, you know, how big a deal is it at the time where, you know, one person getting a headache is a bad thing, but it's a, you know, comparatively minor um, bad thing. Whereas, um, you know, half of the world population being in terrible suffering would be a much, much bigger thing. So you want to take into account both of those things. And then the final aspect, which is the most subtle, is contingency, where if you think about the kind of arc of history, there are some things that are more or less, like, you know, more or less likely to happen anyway, like whatever any one person does. And so at least at the present moment, I think a lot of technological change is like this. Um, we can look at uh, you know, great scientific advances. I mean, a very famous example of this is uh, Newton um, discovering calculus. Uh, and that's an amazing achievement, like very impressive kind of intellectual achievement. However, it didn't really, that particular achievement did not really change the course of history because Leibniz discovered calculus a few years later. Um, and in general, in the world today especially, there's enormous um, resources and attention going to like, try and further intellectual, like in particular technological progress and scientific progress. So any invention you make, maybe you're speeding it up, and that can be important, but it's unlikely that you're creating an invention that would have never happened anyway. However, one of the things I argue in the book is that this contingency might be much higher for kind of moral progress, where it doesn't seem at all inevitable to me that um, certain ways in which um, our moral beliefs could get um, better, more egalitarian, more conducive to human flourishing. Um, it's not at all obvious to me that uh, if um, particular moral campaigners um, didn't do the work that they did, that you know, those changes would happen, other, any, would happen otherwise. And so when we're looking to think about what are the biggest problems in the world, we're looking for those that will be very, very long lasting, those that have a, you know, are really bad at every time, or yeah, those are bad at every time that um, the problem continues, and that also where any solution to the problem wouldn't merely happen anyway. Okay, I, I just wonder if, if the significance and the persistence and the contingency yeah. are themselves subject to kind of radical disruption. Mm -hmm. In other words, if the, if the future were, were stable and the current analysis of the significance, persistence and contingency held, yeah. I understand. What if they don't hold? Uh, I mean, I think... What if re the relative significance changes completely, given a whole bunch of stuff you can't predict? Uh, I mean, I think some things will certainly change um, uh, in the future. So, um, I mean, one thing, you know, for example, the contingency of technological change um, is something I talked about just a moment ago. And I was saying, in the world today, um, technological innovation is... You know, not a particularly contingent thing. Um, I think that wasn't true in the past. Um, if you look at, it's actually kind of remarkable that if you look in particular at the 
uh, early industrial revolution, early, very early stages, some of the technologies that are being invented, they could have been invented at any point in you know, thousands of years prior. So one example is uh, the flying shuttle, um, which is just basically um, some string and some bits of wood that uh, actually just essentially doubled looming productivity overnight. And looming was a really big part of the economy um, in the 18th century. And this was, a, you know, there'd been millions of hours spent looming in the prior, prior to that, but yet no one chose to do it. Um, so that's a way in which kind of, you know, the contingency, yeah, contingency of a particular sort of activity has changed over time. Uh, uh, yes, I completely understand yeah. that. But, uh, but I'm asking, in some sense, it's a more banal question. If, mm. we, if we were having this conversation 25 years ago, mm-hmm. machine intelligence, okay, exponential technologies of that yeah. kind, would simply not figure okay, mm-hmm. in, any, in any of this kind of analysis. And yet they seem to me to fulfill your criteria for things about, for, for um, ideas about the future that should concern us and mm-hmm. that we should adjust for. Yeah, I guess I actually kind of just think that they would, and in fact kind of did feature in the analysis, even if we're going back 25 years. So um, certainly understanding of the nature of the risks and rewards from AI um, were different kind of 25 years ago. But I think it was the case that people who were really taking a kind of longer-term perspective were thinking, okay, what are the sorts of inventions we could have, we could make, that uh, would be just absolutely transformative. And for a very long time, in fact, since uh, 1955, this idea in particular that AI could be used to build better AI, (laughs) which could be used to... um, essentially automate all of technological progress, um, that could be a really key moment in all of human history. The idea goes back to I.J. Good. And so, um, yeah, obviously I'm very confident we're going to be surprised over the coming decades. Um, There'll be things we're not paying attention to, but I think there are things that actually, thinking about this framework, we can um, think about in quite a far-sighted way. Can can I turn to this question of the discount rate or yeah, the kind of expected future value um, of, in this case, people. So again, there are people in the room nodding, but, but for what, I, what we mean by the discount rate is it is typically the case that we would prefer something now than something in the future. Okay, so the difference in the value between something now, let's call it a dollar, and that same dollar in the future um, has to be adjusted by a discount rate for what you expect the future value of that dollar to be. This is a very common mechanism for doing valuations. It applies in uh, economics all the time, but it also applies in in our world, in in your world. And what I think I understand you to be arguing is that we need to to push the discount rate for future humans down towards zero. So the idea that that a current life is not more valuable than a future life is absolutely kind of profoundly part of this of yeah. this thesis, but that's radically un, um, uh, unintuitive mm-hmm. for for most humans. I think for most humans, they have this really powerful intuition that proximity in time and space changes the nature of the of human relations. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because reconciling your position, which I understand. Yep with the notion that 
we would typically defend our children before someone else's children, and so on and so on, yeah. including into the future. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So um, I can uh, can probably talk too much about that. Um, so please interrupt me. So um, economists disc use a discount rate, um, and I think it's totally reasonable for them to do that in most cases, uh, where if I offer you um, a pound today, or ten, let's say ten pounds today, or ten pounds in uh, a year's time, um, you should take the ten pounds today, and that's for a whole variety of reasons. Um, one is that you could invest the ten pounds and get a you know, three percent return or something, so actually you would have more money in the future. A second is that maybe I won't really give you the ten pounds in a year's time. Um, you know, you shouldn't completely trust me. I, I am Scottish. Um, <laughs> uh, a third, though, is that maybe you're going to be richer in the future, and so actually 10 pounds is worth less to you in a year's time than it is today. But then let's just focus on a final reason that economists kind of say, which is that empirically it does seem that people also just are a bit impatient. They care more about themselves now than they do about themselves in a year's time or themselves in 20 years' time. And the ethical question is, you know, is that correct in their own lives? And then secondly, even if it is correct in their own lives, should we apply that across lives to future generations? And uh, economists, um, standardly, at least traditionally, though this is changing um, markedly in recent years, um, have assumed yes, at least in their models. Uh, and I think this is actually a very unintuitive um, kind of position, where uh, in the book I've got this um, thought experiment of just imagine you're walking along a trail, um, you drop some glass, and you're deciding whether to pick up the glass. And you think, oh, well, someone might walk along the trail and cut their foot um, uh, or cut their hand or something. OK, that's a good reason to pick up the glass. But now suppose that you know, when someone harms themselves on that glass, does it really matter whether they harm themselves tomorrow or in a year's time or in 100 years' time? or in a thousand years' time? I think probably not. Um, if you can imagine them sending back a message, I think we'd be equally concerned, because I think uh, harm is harm. You know, it counts the same no matter when, uh, when it occurs. And so I think that aspect of discounting is actually, it's very intuitive to think the discount rate should be zero, that we should count uh, the interests of future beings um, just in the same way that we count the interests of people alive today. If we, were, if we were to put these other reasons for discounting to the side. Just in the interest of double-entry bookkeeping, what happens if harm gets, harm caused by the same piece of glass changes its status in a thousand years' time, mm -hmm. such that by going like that you've fixed it? Mm. Would that invalidate your argument? Uh, I think not, because um, that's a case of, well, either uncertainty, where the further it goes into the future, um, you know, perhaps I become less confident that this actually will be harmful. Uh, or secondly, um, this would be an example of, you know, future people being richer. So um, okay. perhaps uh, some, lo some loss is actually not as bad to those future beings. However, the magnitude of the harm, like if we're keeping that fixed, I think is just equally bad, um, whether that's in 100 years' time or now. So can, can I push you a bit harder on this? this business about proximity, both yeah. in, 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 in space and in time. One of the mechanisms by which we um, 
look after each other is the family. Mm. But one of the mechanisms by which we hoard advantage yeah. um, is the family. Yeah. But it's remarkably powerful as an idea, this idea that proximity um, uh, equals importance. Yeah. And I wonder whether, you, whether your position de simply demands too much of people, mm. both intellectually, in other words, to, to be able to make the, 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 the discount rate zero, yeah. um, but also in order to, have, to make common emotional philosophical cause with someone not yet born or not born for a yeah. thousand years and so on. I, I'm, I'm not going to say this about you, I'm going to say it about myself. Yeah. I struggle with the standards that you require of me to think like that. Um, uh, well, no, well, thanks for bringing it up, because um, I'm maybe not holding you to as high a standard as you might think, um, where I'm not saying that we have exactly the same moral reasons to care about people in a thousand years' time as certainly some people alive today. Um, so we do have reasons of uh, what philosophers call special relationships. Um, we also have reasons of, um, like to our family or to our friends, we also have reasons of reciprocity. So um, if you've kind of helped me or I've made a promise to you, then um, you know, that gives me additional reasons that I'm unlikely to have to someone in a thousand years' time. And so what I'm not saying is that um, you, know, you can either save uh, someone from drowning in a thousand years, or your mum, and you should save the, you know, you should be indifferent. You can save your mum, that's okay. There's addition, there's like more, there's uh, more at stake there. Nonetheless, um, I think that's perfectly compatible with the idea that thinking, you know, everyone has equal moral rights, everyone has um, uh, equal moral status, no matter where they are in time. In the same way, I think it's a perfectly reasonable view to think you should save your mum rather than a stranger. Nonetheless, it's also still true that um, it's not like, from a you know, partial point of view, there's anything of greater moral worth about your mum than the stranger. It's, that, uh, it's just that you have this special relationship. And then maybe the final thing I'd say is just the special relationships don't give you, um, you know, unlimited duties to help your family. Um, and, you know, like with the case of people who are much poorer than us, you know, we can be very good family members, we can be very good friends, while also doing very significant amounts to benefit the poorest people in the world. In the same way, we as a society could be, you know, uh, being, you know, respecting those uh, special obligations we have, while also, you know, not jeopardizing the future um, that we are currently, in the way that we're currently doing. Okay. So, if I understand your answer correctly, what you're saying is you, you, you want to allow the special relationship trumping, as it were, the, the utilitarian outcome. Yeah, or but only weighing up to, against. Yeah, exactly. Only up to a point. Okay? And presumably that point is beyond my mum, but not that far <laughs> beyond my mum. So, so again, it, it, I, I struggle with this because I get, I, get mm. I get that you want to exempt my mum because of yep. the special relationship, but what about my mum's mate? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we have like a... How close are you to your mum's mates? Not at all. <laughs> okay. But my mum is. Okay. Um, my mum's dead, by the way. I shouldn't... <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm talking about mothers. mothers. Mothers in general. Yeah. So, yeah, perhaps you have... You know, obviously the further away... Um, someone is from you in kind of relationship space, like now if it's your mum's mate's mate, like 
they're kind of any additional claim they have on you um, might be comparatively less. Um, and you know, a big question would be whether the mere fact that someone is a co-national with you does that generate any special reasons? Um, I would argue no in that case. Um, uh, but yeah, I would just think it gets the reasons get yeah less and less, um, and probably less and less pretty rapidly. I don't think most of us even intuitively think you have you know this extra special reason to someone that your mum knows, um, uh, compared, certainly compared to um, proximate family members. Okay. Let's park that, because I suspect we will come back sure, to that. Yeah. Can I shift to another thing that you argue in the book, which is that there is a, we're at a kind of, we're at a critical juncture yeah. in, the, in both the history and the prospects for humanity, and that that critical juncture is a function of a bunch of things, notably technology and notably yeah. climate. Can you, can you talk, and, and, and um, you argue also that economic growth as it were, plays into this story yeah. about the future, which again is quite counterintuitive because a lot yeah. of people think growth is the problem. Yeah. So can you talk about that mixture of, as it were, macro things? Sure. So yeah, this is the idea that we're living at um, the, or at least a kind of hinge in history, a period in time that is unusual, in fact, maybe even highly unusual. Maybe we're even living at one of the times that are most important in all of history in terms of our ability to shape the future. And now you might think that sounds like rubbish. What would be the chances of us living at this particular time? Um, and I think that's a very good and reasonable response. Um, however, our time just is very unusual, um, in particular at the rate that we're kind of moving through the kind of technological tree, the rate at which we're developing new technologies. Um, I think it's simply, it's literally unsustainable. Um, where for almost all of human history, technological progress was very slow. Um, the move from uh, flint axes to spear throwers to um, perhaps you know, bows and arrows, this was occurring over tens of thousands of years. Um, and then it was, uh, things kind of sped up gradually over the agricultural era. Um, and then with the Industrial Revolution, things started moving very, very fast. Um, so for almost all of human history, the world, the way the world was when you died was almost exactly the same in terms of technology as the way the world was when you were born. Um, that's now very different. And I think there are good reasons. And so you know, we're getting very rapid te technological progress kind of every year, every decade. And I think that can't continue um, indefinitely either. One thought is just, um, well, this has only been going kind of, you know, this rate has been going like two, three hundred years, yet, as we've said, we have millions, maybe hundreds of millions of years still to come, maybe even longer. Um, it would, uh, yeah, it would seem like uh, surprising if this kind of rate could continue for so long. But then also, if you just think of technology in terms of economic growth, well, if you project this level of economic growth, even just, uh, I think, 10,000 years into the future, you have the conclusion that we have to produce an entire global civilization's worth of output in terms of Earth's, Earth's total output now. That times a trillion, 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 trillion for every atom that we could possibly access in that time. And this just seems kind of absurd. It seems like we're almost we, will, we would certainly hit physical limits by this point even if you don't buy the kind of environmental limits to growth, just on uh, very basic physics grounds. 
we're going to have to hit a limit at some point. And so that means that like technological progress is going to have to slow. And it's plausible at least that uh, the key moments in history may be to do with technology, whether that's because of the technology itself or because of the way technology interacts with um, politics or values. But now you sound like, a, uh, like an exponent of the, of the degrowth thesis, um, which, which I didn't take from your book. Yeah. So, so, so explain that a little bit. Degrowth, degrowth being essentially the movement that says our, our addiction to GDP as a measure of human progress is the thing that's going to kill us and we've got to stop it. Um, yeah, so I'm not making a claim at all about whether this growth, at the moment, about whether this growth is good or bad. Uh, though I do think that the economic growth we've had over the last 300 years is the best thing to ever happen to human beings, at least. Much less clear um, uh, to other beings, you know, whether it was a good thing from the perspective of uh, non-human animals. Um, but I'm just saying this is a reason for thinking our time is unusual not yeah. a reason for saying that it's good. And um, you can take all sorts of kind of implications from that. And it's a kind of, it's a response from the very natural thought of saying like, surely every time thinks that their time is particularly important. I understand. Can, can, I, can I shift a little bit to politics? Yeah. And the kind of messy thing that we call democracy. Um, and the, the, kind of, the kind of default belief that it, that it trumps other forms of organizing ourselves. And just ask you to, to go through a kind of thought experiment. Imagine it were possible to poll 100% of those currently alive mm. okay, um, with the question, should you be worse off in favor of someone a million years hence? First, what do you think the response would be um, and second, if it were, as I believe, overwhelmingly to reject that, mm -hmm. what do we do in terms of the legitimacy of the position? Uh, yeah, so there's both a kind of practical question here and a question of political philosophy, uh, where I think that, you know, future... So uh, I have kind of complex views where, um, on one hand, a long-termist perspective, I think, has made me value democracy much, much more than I thought I did because I have appreciated actually it's plausibly one of these contingent model changes. Um, I thought, think if we lose global democracy, it's not clear we'd get it back. Like if we had a global catastrophe, we had to build back up again. I don't know. I'm like 50-50 whether democracy is anywhere near as prevalent as it is today. However, from a political philosophy perspective, future generations pose this enormous challenge to the legitimacy of democracy where... We would think it was absurd if, let's say, um, Singapore just were able to make decisions that concerned the entire world uh, with no representation. Yet that's what we're like with respect to all future generations. We are making these decisions that will impact the very long term, but they get no, those future generations get no say, they get no vote. Uh, what do you do about that is another question. I actually don't think there's, you know, I still think democracy is better than any other alternative in this regard. But then there's this practical question of, um, okay, yeah, well, what if, as almost certainly is the case, um, people just aren't willing to sacrifice very much in the present for, for um, future generations? There have been studies on this, in particular in the case of climate. Um, I think people are willing to pay $100 a year or something 
Um, that was the kind of implication um, to stop climate change, but not, not more than that. Um, so, you know, they care a little bit. Um, uh, I think the answer has to be cultural change. And I think this is just generally true, where um, you can think of, you know, you can think of this as a way of trying to extend, expand the franchise so that those at least, you know, we're not able to give um, voting rights to people in the future, we can at least give consideration to them. I think when we've looked at um, previous um, movements to expand the franchise, such as uh, to women, such as to um, people of different races, uh, this has had to involve like cultural change first, because otherwise those in power won't give it up unless they get convinced of the moral arguments to do so. Okay, so the politics of long-termism is essentially what you've just described. It's, a, it's, a, it's about creating a climate in which we consistently return to the, to the not-yet-born as having rights over or, or suffering the consequences or benefiting from the consequences of our policy and action. Uh, yeah, I think we have to start with the kind of cultural change where people who are the electorate just actually start to care about um, future okay. generations. Um, can I, can I, and this is a slightly, this is an awkward question to ask, um, but I suspect not an awkward question to answer. One of the charges against long-termism um, uh, is the charge of hubris, the mm -hmm. charge of, as it were, by virtue of what authority are we making these pronouncements? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, I mean, I know, I think I know where, where your answers come from, but could you just address that? Because I think it's, it, it sits underneath a lot of this conversation. Sure, yeah. I actually think it's the opposite, where the approach that kind of, at least I'm advocating for is the humble approach. Um, and the default, where we don't think about this, is the hubristic one. Because what I'm saying is... We're developing AI systems that, um, you know, with the explicit goal of leading labs that uh, have human-level intelligence or, in fact, far greater than human-level intelligence. Uh, and some could have the view, that's going to be great. <laughs> that's just going to be, like, continuation of uh, technological progress so far, which has been really good for people. This is going to be even better. Uh, and my approach is, you know, what I'm inclined to say is, like, well, how confident are you of that? Um, are you extremely confident? And if not, then the fact that... Uh, where kind of playing Russian roulette with the entire course of the future can be a reason for actually like taking things more slowly, being more cautious and thoughtful about how we're developing new technology. Similarly, with um, you know within uh, uh, bio, you know, uh, biological research, um, there's a very strong ethos of just the kind of uh, sanctity of science, where look, people should be able to pursue whatever scientific. Um, ends they want. Look, this has had this great track record so far, which I agree with. Um, but when it comes to gain of function research, the ability to modify viruses to make them more lethal or more transmissible, I think the humble approach is to think, look, we don't really know what the implications of this could be for society. It could be very bad indeed. Like, it does seem like it could be that it kills hundreds of millions of people. Let's maybe again be cautious here and try and um, improve our understanding before we embark on things that are so risky okay. for ourselves as a species. So kind of precautionary long-termism. Yeah, that's right. And I think one confusion that people have, or like one criticism I got from what we are the future, is this idea that we're trying to enact this very particular vision of the future, 
Whereas really um, what we're trying to give the next generation is this like open sea of possibilities so that they can, um, they can figure out like where best to navigate. Um, we can't give them that open, you know, that blank canvas if they don't exist. We can't give them that blank canvas if we have a, they're living under the stable totalitarian state. And so it's really about trying to preserve as many options as we can. Okay. So in a minute, I'm going to ask for you all, both online and in the room, to start asking us uh, questions. But I'm going to ask you one last question, which is really a question from one of my colleagues. And it, re and it relates to the, one of the effective altruism principles, which is get good at something, yeah. and then use that thing. So in the book, there are, there's an example of tennis. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a tennis player in the book. Um, and that's, the, that's, as it were, the example of someone who, who hones some kind of comparative advantage, which they then use, as it were, mm -hmm. disproportionately to influence yeah. um, uh, the future or to improve humanity. And the question, I think, is, is that to misread, as it were, the, psych the psychology of altruism, the, mm -hmm. kind of the, the intrinsic motivation of um, fellow feeling or generosity or whatever mm -hmm. it might be, this, this calculus that says, unless I have some comparative advantage, I will be less able to help humanity. Mm. Therefore, I gotta, I've got to um, park it while I get to be the fourth best doubles player in the world or whatever. <laughs> I can't remember the details. Uh, okay, so you're suggesting that, um, you know, so effective altruism, uh, more generally, you know, we're often encouraging people to think big and try and think about, um, uh, yeah, doing good as, know something you can do better that or worse at and we should try and do more good rather than less um, and if you're willing at least that can mean like making this a big part of your uh, life including part of your career uh, I wouldn't recommend most people for most people to try and become professional tennis players um, you're probably not good enough sorry <laughs> um, uh, but you would but, recommend that they got really really good at something in order that they, in their future selves, could maximize their altruism. You yeah, would argue that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, but I think that's just a message that resonates with very many people. Um, I think, you know, I mean, as we've kind of just found from um, the success of the movement uh, over these many years, many people just, they really care about the problems in the world. They want to make a difference to them. But they don't want to just make any difference. Like they, because they care about the problems, making more of a difference is better than less. And often people don't, it's not like they're doing this out of a sense of like duty, kind of self-flagellating, but in fact, they're like excited about the prospect of, you know, with their lives being able to contribute to um, human progress. And yeah, that's a big project. And if you can find something that you can really excel at and use that to um, leave the world in a better place, I think many people actually find that exciting and motivating rather than just uh, arduous. I agree, although I'm enough of a social scientist, there are people in the room who will laugh when I say that, but, but most people sit in the middle of the distribution, don't they? Mm. In other words, most people are not exceptional. Mm -hmm. So does that risk, as it were, de-emphasizing the everyday altruism of, every, of averagely competent people? Mm. Well, I think there's just... Um, you know, in other words, not the rich, on your, not the successful, not the people yeah. who've, 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 as it were, suspended their altruism for 20 years in order to, to do more yeah. of it later. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things to say. Like, one is I just think anyone can 
make an absolutely enormous difference to the world just via their donations. Um, so if you're donating 10%, I mean, just focus on the kind of easily measurable near-termist stuff, like donate 10% of your income um, every year. Uh, you'll, on a middle-class you know, income in a country like the UK, um, you'll be saving lives every single year. Um, that's like this enormous difference that you can make just by this one action. Um, and, you know, why is that? And it's partly because everyone in this room is, in fact, exceptional. Um, you are probably in the richest few percent of the world's population. You're uh, likely to be in the richest one percent of the world's population, in fact, at least for a significant chunk of your life. That gives you this unbelievable power to make a difference, um, whether that's to, um, you know, the lives of people in extreme poverty or whether it's to some of the you know, big problems we've been highlighting today. Thank you. Thank you. Right, um, the time has come for us to take questions from the floor. So I'm going to start with one from the room, and then I'm going to go online, and I'm going to try to alternate between one and the other. <coughs> uh, put your hand out, tell us your name. The uh, stewards in red have the microphone, so I'm going to go straight to you. Hello, my name is Munir. I'm a student here at the Executive Master's uh, Program, Social Business Entrepreneurship, so under the stewardship of Professor Stefan and Professor uh, uh, Jonathan. Yeah, and we've read a lot of your work in our course, uh, Dr. William. Um, and a lot of what we talk about is the market failure when it comes to uh, information asymmetry and, and choice and voice. And we talk about social impact and evaluation. So I'm wondering, when you speak across these time frames of a million years, what is the role of data and measuring impact uh, and, and the ordinary people's access to that type of information in supporting your claim for this long-term outlook uh, for, for the human good. Okay, yeah, so role of, uh, yeah, role of data in you know, trying to make the long-term better. And it's tough. I mean, this is you know, four people who say, um, hear the arguments and are like, look, this just isn't going to be constrained enough by empirical information that we have. Um, I'm going to focus on something else that is, you know, much more amenable to metrics and measurable and um, measurement, like global health is kind of paradigm of that. I think that's like a totally reasonable way in which to get off the boat of these arguments. Um, there are things, and so a lot of the case, a lot of the time, it's like trying to understand the world in general. So we have some data, data on, um, you know, uh, how likely pandemics were. Uh, like are to occur, where you get a Spanish flu or COVID-19 level pandemic about every century. Um, but that's still like pretty, that's not really constraining you, especially when you're thinking about ways in which the future might be quite different than the past, and particularly that we can engineer new pathogens. Um, but one thing that's come out of uh, long-termism and uh, people influenced by these ideas are ways of trying to get just better understanding of um, future events, even when it's kind of unconstrained. So there's a whole field, like kind of science now of forecasting. So back in 2016, there was a question um, on a kind of community uh, platform that said, what's the chance within the next 10 years that um, we will experience a global pandemic that will kill at least 10 million people um, within a year? Um, and they put, you know, and what we had was a whole community of people making different forecasts. There's no data really to constrain that. Again, there is the base rate, but it's not that 
you know, the historical track record, but it's not that constraining. Um, but what you can have is just many different people. They've all got their own, you know, kind of take on the different sorts of on the evidence. Put that into a probability judgment um, and aggregate that. And the answer they you know came up with in 2016 was one in three. And I think if the governments of the world had taken seriously that there was a one in three probability of a pandemic that would kill more than 10 million people over the coming decade, I think we'd have maybe been a bit more prepared than we were. And that's a way in which actually I think we can do much better than a kind of mantra which is kind of common within um, that people commonly have, which is like, oh, well, if you don't have the data, if you don't have evidence, we just can't know anything. And that's just not really true. There's a big difference between you know, a 30% probability of something happening and a one in a million probability of something happening. And so, yeah, we can make better. Um, this kind of yeah, science of forecasting is a way in which we can at least make more informed judgments than we have. Or at least make them probabilistic. Yeah. Um, Daniel Williams, um, philosopher at Sussex, has sent in a question. And the question, if I may paraphrase it, um, uh, is that there seems to him to be a tension in your book yeah. between what he thinks of as a, as a, is a fairly cynical view about moral change mm -hmm. being contingent, yeah. okay, and the example that you write about slavery, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, it's, and it's contingent rather than absolute um, origins and a kind of um, moral idealism that mm -hmm. otherwise characterizes the book. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. I mean, it was very funny for me when the book was published and people were interviewing me. And, uh, you know, this is a book that mainly talks about catastrophes, um, <laughs> catastrophes like or ways values could go very badly, ways we could lose almost everything that's of importance. And uh, so many people would say, oh, it's such an optimistic book. Uh, and I think... <laughs> The reason for that is just the bar is very low in um, modern society for optimism. Uh, so I guess I think, two, I think it, it, this is um, resolvable, where um, I do think that morality is highly contingent. So there's this kind of, um, well, kind of the moral beliefs people have are highly contingent, where there's this kind of Whig view that uh, people somewhat you know, often nowadays associate to a more or less fair extent with Steven Pinker. It's just sometimes called the teleological view. Teleological view. We're just going to like figure it all out, morally speaking, over time, and then we're going to, um, uh, you know, as long as we don't know total huge catastrophes have, we'll think about something that's basically like the best possible future. The arc of the universe bends towards justice. Yes, exactly. For example. Yeah, and Ben. I mean. And you know, bends really quite strongly towards justice on this view. Um, and I don't hold that view. Um, uh, I do think we've seen uh, very significant moral progress over the last couple of hundred years. Um, I don't feel at all confident that that would continue for many thousands of years into the future. Um, so in that sense, um, I'm uh, you know, pessimistic compared to some other people. However, I'm optimistic in the sense of no matter what way the world is, we should be optimistic in the sense of trying to figure out how we can make it better and then acting on that. Um, where there's this very common sentiment where people are like, well, um, you know, the world is messed up and there's nothing we can do about it. And my view is the world is messed up, we can make it better. And um, that's a way in which I'm optimistic. Um, 
so uh, the first hand I saw was the, was you, sir, um, and I've se I've seen and noticed other people, so I will certainly come back. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, big admirer of your work. Uh, your thesis about it being a good thing to have lots of future generations is at odds with uh, like antinatalism and like minimalist views on population ethics, um, where. You know, the idea is that the best way to prevent suffering is to stop bringing suffering sentient beings into existence. Uh, my question is, to what extent is there a not necessarily attention, but to what extent would people with those views be welcome in the EA community, given that, that there does seem to be some correlation on things like uh, factory farming, wild animal suffering, and the potential suffering of AI? Yep. Um, okay, great. So kind of the trickiest chapter of my book is about population ethics, this question of whether it's good or bad to have an extra person in the world, especially even if they have no other consequences. And you might think, you know, let's say the person has a happy life. Uh, you might think, okay, well, it's a good thing, more happiness in the world. Um, or you might think, look, the happiness doesn't matter, but they also suffer. And in fact, actually only suffering that matters. Um, so more people just means more badness. Or you might think that, look, it can be that more people is good, but in practice, humanity just tends to bring along a lot more suffering than um, they bring along uh, good things. So I made this comment earlier that the last 200 years of technological progress have been truly amazing for human beings. Um, what have they been like for animals? Well, we could ask one of the uh, 80 billion animals that are currently in, like, factory farms, and they, if they could speak, they would say it, it, this sort of progress hasn't been so good for them. Um, I do think there actually are, like many people um, within the effective altruism community who have this more pessimistic view in the future, um, and actually are just like not at all convinced that uh, the long-term future is going to have you know, more good than bad, more happiness than suffering. That's actually, you can still be a long-termist and do that, because like I said, there are two things that um, you can do to positively impact the long term. One is to reduce the risk of collapse or extinction. The second is to try to make the future go better. That could be by improving society's values. So I think this attitude that we have to non-human beings, whether that's animals or whether that's you know, future artificial beings we create, I think that's one of these morally contingent things. Um, I think who knows how we'll get that. Um, how uh, we will handle that um, in the coming decades. And I think the kind of work that um, has been done to try and give people this anti-speciesist um, moral worldview is enormously important. Um, yeah. So, so apropos that, Finn Thwaite online has asked pretty much this question, but specifically about non-human animals. Mm. And I think the, behind the question is, the, is, the, is, is there a trade-off between long-termism through the prism of human animals mm -hmm. and long-termism through the prism of all sentient creatures? Yeah, I think... Because um, you, you could imagine that being quite a serious trade-off. Yeah, I mean, my personal view is that we should be thinking about the interests of all sentient beings. So humans, non-human animals, any future beings that we create that are conscious and have um, interests. Uh, I think, like, the further out... So at the moment, um, there are this truly enormous number of um, uh, non-human animals um, that are kept generally in conditions of terrible suffering um, because of human action. Um, 
that's a really big fact about the world. Um, I expect that to not hold the, the further we look into the future. Um, partly that's because like, when we look sufficiently far into the future, I expect, um, you know, I expect digital beings to be a larger and larger fraction um, of the world. Uh, Non-sentient digital beings. Or it could be sent. Well, I actually would expect them to be sentient. In okay, the so you would they would we can, be included in your concept of sentience. Yeah, I mean it can go either way. Like obviously, you know, who knows? But quite plausibly, I mean, you know, why are we conscious? Um, it's because, on my best view, it's because we're doing certain sorts of information processing in the brain. Um, it's very intuitive that, like, when if we watch sci-fi, then um, you know, machine like machines or aliens, um, we have like sympathy for them if they act in the kind of same way. Um, at some point in the future, we'll be creating beings that are like that too, probably. Um, okay. Thank you. Okay, person in the third row. Yeah. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. My name is uh, Mo Lohmann. I'm from Hamburg, Germany, and I've been a subscriber of long-termism for a bit, um, working with local groups of EA in Germany for a bit now as well. Um, but I think that there is a bit of an elephant in the at least European community that it's a quite western slash white community that there's not really a lot of joining from global south people in the groups and my personal background is china studies so i've worked a lot with people in china and trying to get ea to china mm. and it's not really worked so i guess what i'm trying to ask is because you've been saying how long-termism is something that ideally really shows that we now have so much power to change the future and ideally i would say that because now china's rising so much a person in beijing then has maybe even two or three times as much power because so much is changing there now or say shenzhen where all the technology is coming from and changing rapidly flying taxis might be happening soon how do you think can we get the idea of long-termism to a place like shenzhen um, and why do you think it has been perhaps so difficult so far thank you so, so two questions there one is this is the voice that speaks for long-termism uh, sufficiently uh, representative of the, the current living mm -hmm. diversity? One, and then two, a tactical question, what about China? Yeah. So yeah, again, kind of um, on the first aspect of this question, you know, this is a big part of why. Um, I think like if you have the long-termist perspective, you should try and envisage what we're trying to create is like giving humanity as many options as possible. Um, rather than trying to implement some very particular vision of the of the world, um, because yeah, who knows what the correct moral values are? Like I think the fact that we've got this like diversity of different cultures and moral views is a very good thing about the world today. I'd like to increase that diversity rather than decrease it. On the tactical question, um, I mean, at least within effective altruism, we are seeing seeing like significant growth in some other places. So. Um, there's now a really like uh, healthy and vibrant community in um, Kenya, for example. Um, it was great to meet a bunch of the effective altruism Kenya folks at EA Global. Um, similarly, the effective altruism India um, kind of contingent as well. Um, Philippines as well. Uh, China is kind of its own thing um, because uh, there's 
um, a lot of resistance um, by the party to kind of outside influence. Um, so there are people kind of promoting similar ideas um, uh, in China. Um, I mean, there's actually a really interesting intellectual tradition. So again, in What We Are the Future, I talk about the Mohists um, in uh, you know, about 500 BC uh, promoting kind of the first early form of consequentialism. And so there are certain groups who like see themselves continuous with the Mohists and promoting similar ideas. Um, but yeah, I just absolutely agree. I mean, I'd like uh, that I would love there to be like greater kind of influence, um, or, you know, greater uptake of these ideas uh, elsewhere, rather than just being dominated by the kind of founder effects of US and Australia and the UK. Um, question online brings the, brings the conversation to the kind of realm of the day-to-day -day political. Um, anonymous, unfortunately, I don't know the person's name, saying, would one way to create the kind of culture shift that you described to have um, ombudsman for, for long-termism mm -hmm. embedded in every single policy-making entity in the world, essentially? Uh, yeah, so one of the chapters that never made it into this book, actually, was a chapter on kind of institutions for political generations, so political institutions for future generations, um, where you know, can we do something that's kind of like representing future generations? Um, and I think it's tough because of the fundamental reason that future generations, um, uh, they aren't around. So we're always having to use some sort of proxy. So I do think that having an ombudsperson for future generations, that's like someone in government who is responsible, responsible for really thinking about and taking seriously issues that will impact future generations and at least making noise. Um, is a good thing. So there's um, Sophie Howe is the Welsh Commissioner for Future Generations. There is going to be a special envoy for future generations at the UN. So next year there will be a summit for the future, and uh, that will get announced. Um, uh, and that's something I'm kind of really in favour of too. So the thing I kind of want to am like in favour of this. The thing I want to say is it's a very minor intervention um, in countries where they've tried to have a representative for future generations that has any sort of like political clout, well, the, a different party comes in and you know, it, gets, um, it gets sacked because, you know, precisely because like the future generations can't hold on to that power. It's got to be a decision made by the actual electorate. Okay. Question come in online, which I'm going to paraphrase. But essentially what I think the question, it's anonymous, I don't know the person's name, but what, what I think they're saying is, doesn't this whole conversation feel a bit different if you're dying at the moment okay, of the lack of wherewithal? In other words, what kind of perspective um, does this conversation entail okay, for the very poorest in the world? Yeah. And I know that you don't think that, <laughs> I mean, I know you know yeah. uh, your position on this, but I think it would be useful to address. Sure, yeah. I mean, this is um, kind of glad it's brought up because it's just like, the horror of the world we live in that I think we all need to face is that you need to make life and death trade-offs essentially all the time. Um, and this is, people don't discuss it because it's like a truly um, awful thing to be think, having to think about. But um, any one of us has finite resources. We have finite money, finite time. So even let's supposing we forget about long-termism, we're just concerned about the extreme poor. I'm like, okay, I give my money to a malaria charity. And that will um, save people dying of malaria. What about the people dying of AIDS? Like, you have made a choice for that person 
who has now you know died of AIDS who could have been saved um, or you mean by restricting antiretrovirals and so on yeah exactly so you could have been um, you could have been um, yeah providing antiretrovirals you could have been providing tuberculosis treatment anything you do involves like if you're trying to do good anything you do will involve making a trade-off about who you're helping and who you're not and that's this horrible fact about the world and uh, I think that anyone who is thinking about long-termism should take absolutely seriously that there's very intense suffering alive today and, you know, very intense suffering around today and um, we can prevent that suffering easily and this is not an easy trade. Like, so, any so, of these are not easy decisions to make. So just, just linking that question and your answer with the previous question about voice and diversity, is there a risk that this movement becomes excessively technocratic mm -hmm. and excessively a, a movement that exists only in, let's say, universities, mm. places like the LSE, and that to, to achieve the kind of momentum that you describe when you talk about culture change, yeah. it needs to have, it needs to be more accessible to more people, less technocratic, less analytical. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think ultimately that's true. Um, I think if you look at other sorts of social movements or intellectual movements, um, you know, they have, you know, by definition, you have to start kind of small and then um, eventually kind of broaden out. Uh, so, one thing that really struck me when I was um, really looking into the abolition of slavery is just how long things took. Where the first petition, I think it's 1662, and then abolition of slave owning and slave trade was 1833 in Britain. Um, you know, now it's the case that most, almost everyone around the world agrees that slave owning is um, utterly reprehensible. But that was this like very niche movement for quite a long time, and it only just um, over time kind of filtered out. And I'm hoping the same thing for um, these ideas now. You've got to. We're at the stage where you know long-termism as a term is, I think, six years old. I'm trying to make the case to the. Um, at the moment, to the intellectual elites like yourself, and then from there we can kind of spread out if the arguments are good. I understand. Question from the floor. You had your hand up, and then, and then right at the back um, is the second one. Um, first, this person here, and then woman right at the back. Then I've, I've seen you, and I've seen you. Well, thank you. My name is Francisco. I'm studying the Social Innovation Entrepreneurship Program. Well, the one that's not the executive one. Um, and I had a question very similar to what you've just been asked uh, regarding sort of like long-termism being perceived as maybe like an elitist privilege for now since we have, you know, like a billion people that currently live in poverty and have this tunnel vision that affects them. To sort of like add on to what you were just being answering, what would be like your vision to sort of achieve that sort of like critical mass in the world to have this sort of perception? What are some like strategies that we can take as a society or some strategies for? Okay, yeah. I mean, I think ultimately like it is about um, kind of doing things in the right order where, you know, at the moment these ideas are very new. Um, a lot of people are very skeptical of them. Um, uh, at least if Twitter is any form of evidence. Um, and the first thing we need to do is just like make the case, make the cases like credible. And perhaps it's not credible, perhaps it's wrong. And we'll get people will 
show, uh, say why it's wrong. That would be a that would be a win too. So um, at the moment, it's at that stage. I am excited about kind of broader forms of outreach too. So um, I'm working with a kind of film studio discussing um, possible, uh, uh, yeah, possible like TV series based around these ideas and like movies based around these ideas as well. Um, this is also something that's like you know potentially highly international. Um, again, in terms of like the stage I'm at, which is like trying to make the arguments, there's also this whole year, in fact, will be about translations into um, other languages too. And then, but I think this is the natural thing where it's like you start off making the arguments, um, then you get the kind of secondhand traders of ideas, um, which are kind of journalists or people in the media and so on. And then over time, and again, this just this sort of moral change takes time. It takes decades, if not more. Um, then filters into kind of mass media, um, you know, like movies, novels, um, uh, television programs, um, and that's how you get this kind of very broad, kind of long-lasting change. Question right at the back. Yeah. Wait, just wait. Wait for the microphone so the recording can hear you. Uh, thank you very much for a great talk and sharing. I have a question on a specific topic. Um, I'd like your perspective on should we pay more attention to the issue of how we care about very sick children who are going to die and their parents, mm -hmm. something called palliative care. Uh, should we be paying more attention to this issue? And I'm asking because it seems to fit the six different criteria from your two books. Uh, okay, so you're asking about you know, palliative care in particular. Um, yeah, I mean, this is not uh, something I, like, um, I'm kind of particularly focused on um, or, like, know much about, so I'm sure how helpful I'll be. But, um, yeah, again, in general, with respect to um, global uh, health and well-being and when we're thinking about different ways of um, uh, trying to improve the health of other people, um, there I just kind of, like, tend to follow what um, health economists um, uh, think are, like seem to have like the biggest benefits for kind of a given amount of resources, which tends actually often to focus on children instead um, rather than kind of end, end of life care. Again, not to say that's not like enormously important, but um, at the moment it seems like because there are just hundreds of thousands of children dying kind of needlessly every um, year from easily preventable diseases, um, and it only costs like a few thousand dollars to, or pounds to save a child's life, that's like this kind of very high bar to beat. And perhaps some other things like can beat that, but it's at least um, uh, makes it difficult for um, other sorts of kind of healthcare to be even more cost effective than that. Okay, I know this is not a very long-termist thing to say, but we're coming towards the end of the <laughs> session. So I wanna make sure that those of you who wish a voice have a voice. So I can see one person with an LSE top, one person at the front, you in the middle, you. So what I'm going to do is go. I didn't see you. OK. Sorry for how long? Quite a while. <laughs> OK, it sounds like you just jumped the queue. Hello. Um, so, hi, I am from China, a country with 5,000 years of history. So, uh, what you do really echoes with me is that you seem 
consciously and actively building your legacy to human being. Uh, so which leads to my question is that um, among all forms of legacies like architecture and uh, um, morality and culture, which form of legacy would you call, uh, would you consider to be the dominant one that can lead the human race? Say the last two words again. Legacy uh, that? Uh, that you would consider to be the dominating one and th that can lead the human race. So, okay, what's the legacy that could, that is like lead, you said leading the human race. Yeah, because you were talking about uh, like morality, politics, ideas, and of course technology. Which one do you think, you know, can be the most important legacy? Mm. Okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, again, I think like at least for the kind of this generation of the human race, um, I guess kind of what I think ultimately is the, like a moral legacy is the thing that's the genuine legacy. So you might think it's like all of this technological um, advancement that we make because there's so much of it. But I think that that's just moving things forward in time. So even if we totally stopped technology for this generation and started it in 30 years time, well, things would have happened uh, 30 years earlier than otherwise. But in terms of the model changes that we make at the moment, um, and then in particular about how we handle um, AI, I think, which is the biggest challenge that um, moral challenge that we'll face in our lifetimes. I think that really is contingent, and um, that really is something that uh, you know will be a legacy that's uh, uh, you know not something that merely would have happened otherwise. Okay, um, we have uh, uh, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to bundle all the questions together. Okay. So starting with the LSE sweatshirt, and then with the green shirt there, and then behind the green shirt, and then over there. So if you, if you all speak your questions as quickly as you can, I will record them, and I'll ask Will to address them so that we don't run out of time. Make it as quick as you can. Um, OK, hello. My name is Armin. I'm, uh, as you can see from my hoodie, a st uh, student here at LSE. But I'm originally from Hungary. And I just want to ask you about something that uh, came to my mind when I first became acquainted with the EA movement and long-termism. I was reminded of Isaac Asimov's book, Foundation. And I was just wondering whether you think it's kind of arrogant to think that we can accurately predict what's, what will happen in 50 years, 150 years, 5,000 years, and whether or not it should be more important to focus on the problems in the present rather than in the future. Okay, question about hubris, arrogance, uh, um, pre uh, predictive ability. Yes, in the green shirt. Good to wear something bright. Um, I'm an AI consultant. My question is, also uh, you, uh, you think you agree with that technological advancement should still uh, be continuing? and we should still develop AI. I ask why you think we should continue the development instead of stopping it. Yeah. Okay. Right behind you, there's a question right behind you. I'm researching on degrowth for my thesis right now, and I'm wondering, because you mentioned cultural change a lot, and how do you achieve cultural change for people to actually care about the future generations, and especially to uh, slow down a uh, growth economy from people that perceive themselves as ne neoliberalists. 
Yep, the, on the right, just at the back there. Thank you so much for the talk. Um, and I was wondering, what do you think if short-term interest is not in the same position as a long-term interest? What if um, doing good for the long-term, let's say in a million years, is not the same as doing good in the short-term? And also, um, how do we, like you mentioned that this count rate should be zero, but what if in the future that as technology advances, these harm would not be seen as much as a harm as it would be in the context of today? Okay, anyone else? Yes, you in the pale blue shirt in the middle. You had your hand up right at the beginning and I missed you, sorry. Yeah, um, hi, I'm Charlie. You mentioned about the abolition of slavery and I wondered if um, protest movements have a role in these contemporary risks as well. Okay, and there was somebody over here. And yeah, I know, I remember you. <laughs> Hi, uh, Ben, alumni. Um, and so just kind of going back to what you had said earlier about kind of people would care about uh, people who are closest to them um, a little bit more than people in the future. Um, oftentimes, a lot of people in marginalized communities, if you give them the choice, they might choose to kind of support those communities. So just, do you think it's still important? Or like, how would you kind of discuss the contradiction between long-term risk future and giving power to more marginalized communities who might want to support themselves? Okay. Um, your neighbor had a hand up. No, you didn't. You didn't. Okay, this person at the front. And then I think <laughs> that person there. Actually, it's not your second, is it? No. Oh, yeah, my uh, name is Lawrence. And my question was, uh, throughout the conversation, you mentioned extinction um, as a very bad thing. And following on from what uh, John said, um, there's sort of a growing thought uh, that it maybe isn't a bad thing. And I think you mention it in maybe two sentences in the population ethics chapter about antinatalism. And I wanted to ask what you think of it in general, but also why you only put in two sentences um, as it's sort of like a, it's picking up more steam recently. Okay, um, yes, yeah, well actually no, sorry, this person first and then you get your second. Uh, yeah, this is another population ethics question I'm afraid. Um, uh, yeah, um, it seems like quite plausible that the benefits of like being born might not be commensurate with the benefits of say like avoiding like suffering a lot, um, or, like avoiding death. Uh, in this case, like uh, bringing people into the future, um, it seems like maybe like uh, yeah, we have like much stronger duties to uh, prevent people from suffering or prevent like animals from suffering now over um, uh, bringing people, letting people have, like good lives in the future. I'm not, I'm not sure I completely captured that, but I think I'm going to I'm going to rely on Will to have captured that. Last question. Thank you. I was just wondering, perhaps a little thought-provoking, but could, could of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki be considered acts of effective altruism? Because when the generals were considering the military, military strategy, they said, okay, if we drop the bombs, less people will die than over a long-term invasion of those respective cities, and thus, in the long term, we reduce the amount of death that could happen. 
And if there is an act of effective altruism in that, are there any potential ethical pitfalls coming as a result of that philosophy? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not will, but I would say that bombing can't be altruistic. It can be utilitarian, it can't be altruistic. But that, I'm not Will, so I'm going to wait for you to answer this. Right, we've got a bunch of questions here, and I'm going to run through them, and you can choose the ones you answer, <laughs> okay. choose the ones you don't. First one, which is a variation on the hubris theme, is this just arrogance, as it were, presuming to know stuff uh, uh, about the future? Yeah, I think I said that um, in response to you earlier. No, I think it's the opposite, yeah. where I think it's with these technologies, we don't know what's going to happen. That takes a, you should have a cautious response. Second question, um, why, is a, why is continuing with the AI project okay? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we should slow down AI. Okay. But, I love this. This is better. Yeah, I love this. This is like speed interviewing. Yeah. Um, third question, degrowth. A real thing, not a real thing? Something we should all get behind? Well, maybe this can help us to slow down AI. <laughs> okay, so, so you know, a political that, coalition can emerge. Okay, so is that a tacit argument for degrowth? Well, I believe in differential technological progress. So um, some technology is awesome, biomedical that doesn't be at risk of new pathogens, like power the head as much as possible, clean tech, power the head as much as possible, um, gain of function research, we can leave that, put that into the future. So I think growth versus degrowth, um, we just should do it on a technology by technology basis. Okay. Um, short-term priorities trumping long-term horizons. Uh, yeah, I mean, often there's a surprising like co-benefit where things that are good in the long term are also good in the short term. I also think that's where we should start. Um, like it's, you know, it's actually surprising like how often this is the case. And similarly, like sadly, as we've seen, um, things that one might think are sci-fi risks like AI or um, novel pandemics um, are actually short-term risks too. So again, I think we should start with the things which are benefit, good for the sh near and the long term. Then at some future point, we'll have to make harder trade-offs, but um, we can cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, question about protest movements, which I take to be something to do again with, do you focus on, as it were, um, uh, historical injustice and current culture, or do you, or do you um, push those things forward? Uh, yeah, I mean, some effective altruists actually apparently protested outside DeepMind um, yesterday, I think. Um, so we're starting to see a little bit of that. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, there is a disanalogy between future generations and previous um, social justice movements uh, where future generations can't represent themselves. Um, and so with civil rights, you know, you can get the people who are the victims of the injustice um, to kind of march in the streets. We can't do that with future generations. That makes it harder, but um, uh, yeah, protest, civil disobedience can have a role to play um, if it's well used. A question about marginalized communities, which I take to be an analogous to what you've just said. Mm -hmm. Just as the future generations can't tell us or protest, yeah. marginalized communities don't have access to that kind of voice. Yeah, well, and it's tough, because I think of future generations, they are the marginalized community um, themselves, but not one we can kind of give power to. Um, and that just makes things um, particularly challenging. Okay. Um, I answered the question on your behalf, but that's not fair. So the Hiroshima answer uh, question. Uh, Hiroshima, um, fine, I'll give my hot take. You really didn't need, like, we could have demonstrated, the US could have demonstrated the power of nuclear weapons without killing hundreds of thousands of people. And I think that would have been sufficient to stop the war. 
and altruism presumably a priori can't be sorry bombing cannot a priori yeah I mean I'm also like I'm dispositionally pacifist um, and I'm generally against killing one person to save many okay last question Um, the question we're going to end on which I'll probably get into trouble for is is extinction such a bad thing yeah Um, so in terms of discussing this whole of chapter 9 is all about this question of whether extinction is good or bad um, uh, whether the future will be good or bad um, and I argue it'll be, um, I argue on balance it's good. So I do think the track record is that ultimately that um, things have been getting better. In particular, things have been getting better for actors like human beings rather than um, uh, patients like um, animals. So the beings that do things in the world, they do things to make their lives better. That's a kind of predictable thing. I expect um, in the course of the future there to be many more kind of um, beings who are trying to do things. I expect there to be far um, fewer kind of animals in factory farms as a proportion. I also think that if we tell like a story about how could things be very, very good indeed, well, we've got like, you know, best possible future. We have an explanation, which is that people have really tried to, they've really thought about what's best and tried to make that best thing happen. Whereas normally suffering um, is a kind of side effect of some other end rather than something that people are aiming for. It's not that people want animals to suffer, it's that they um, like the taste of meat and don't care that animals suffer. And so I think it's much easier to tell a story um, where things end up very, very good than when things like end up as bad as they possibly could be, because it's not the case that I expect people to aim for things to be bad. So I think it's a tough question. I'd love there to be more work on it, but overall I think extinction is bad. So on that bombshell... Um, uh, we have come to the end of our time and it only remains for me to thank you um, for the book, for your work for this conversation I think whether you're a utilitarian or not whether you're a consequentialist or not whether you're a long-termist or not um, it seems to me that what Will is and, and a number of colleagues are working on is incredibly important for anyone who cares about um, threats from the existential to the local human flourishing um, and the future and I think that what I value most about the book is not simply that but that I think Will has also written a defense of philosophy as a way of thinking about the world a defense of reason and analysis and evidence and altruism and for that even if you don't buy every argument for that alone I think Um, it is worth thanking you. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.